Decoding Cyberspace is brought to you by the SGAC Space and Cybersecurity Project Group, mobilizing the creativity and vigor of youth in advancing humanity through the peaceful uses of outer space. And welcome to episode 2 of Decoding Cyberspace, a show dedicated to exploring the frontiers of information communications technology and cybersecurity across the final frontier. On this episode, we are delighted to welcome special guest Malcolm Davis, Senior Analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, a leading international affairs and policy think tank in Australia. Malcolm holds a PhD in Military Strategic Studies from the University of Hull and has previously worked in the Australian Department of Defence, Bond University and King's College London. His areas of expertise span space policy, future warfare and Chinese military modernisation. Malcolm, welcome to Decoding Cyberspace and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. My pleasure. Awesome. So firstly, could you help brief our audience more about your background, particularly your work and experiences leading up to your current position at ASPE? Yes, certainly. I mean, I'm essentially a strategic analyst. Uh, my role at ASPE is to look at defence policy, defence issues, strategic issues uh, and international security and uh, provide alternative defence advice uh, and defence policy and strategic policy advice to government uh, through ASPE publications and ASPE events. Um, so essentially, my, my business is thinking about the future of warfare, future of military technology, and I have a, a close focus on space security and space policy issues uh, in, within that research. How I, how I got to this is that I joined ASPE in 2016 in my current role as Senior Analyst in Defence Strategy and Capability. Uh, prior to that, I've been in academia, uh, particularly King's College London from 2000 to 2007. Uh, and also I spent about three years at Bonn University doing postdoctoral research there. Uh, and I also have spent a number of years within the Department of Defence as a uh, analyst uh, within both the Strategic Policy Division and also the Navy uh, headquarters area. So it's, it's, it's a strong, deep background in defence and strategic studies with a focus very much on future warfare and military technology and in particular space uh, as an area of, of contested um, domain. Absolutely. So how has your work at ASPE contributed to your professional career? And where would you see yourself in five years? Well, ASPE is Australia's leading think tank on defence and strategic studies and uh, national security issues. So the chance for me to work at ASPE uh, in the past four years and hopefully go on for a few more uh, I think is, is a great privilege. Um, I'm working with some of the best strategic thinkers here in Australia. Uh, and our job really is to provide um, defence and strategic policy advice to government, is to shape the public debate on defence and strategic policy issues uh, and uh, develop new uh, generations of thinkers uh, through uh, our internship programs and through uh, public events and so forth. So really, sort of, I'm very privileged to be able to work here uh, all these years and hopefully go on a few more. In terms of where I see myself in five years, I'd like, obviously, I'd like to see myself uh, have a few more years at ASPE, but then 
I think probably whether I would look to return to academia for a while uh, here in Australia, probably with the ANU National Security College, um, or potentially um, given my focus on space, uh, I'd be interested in opportunities within the Australian Space Agency in a strategic policy and uh, space policy uh, context. So moving along from this, what is it about outer space which excites you? Well, I've always been interested in space. Um, I think that since a young age, uh, I've been fascinated by space and the universe. Uh, I've been a long time amateur astronomer. Uh, I think also my family have been involved in space uh, for a long time. My uncle uh, worked with NASA uh, during the Apollo and shuttle programs as, as a flight engineer. Uh, and so probably his experiences have rubbed off on me to a degree. Uh, I think that uh, I went into space in a more serious way, uh, probably at uh, my time at King's College London uh, as a lecturer in defence studies, when I started uh, running a course for the military officers there on space policy and space power. Uh, and I've developed that over, over the years. And I think that the space domain is something that's really quite exciting um, because in a way it's very new. Obviously we've been in space uh, since the late 1950s, um, but really it's a new area uh, for people to think about um, in terms of how it affects international security and its role in warfare. Uh, and I think that when I was doing my PhD at the University of Hull uh, back between 97 and 2002, uh, and I was thinking about where I wanted to go after that. I, you know, at that time, cyber warfare and cyber security was the hot area. And I thought, well, maybe I should do that. But then I thought, well, every man and his dog is going to be doing cyber. So I'm going to focus on space. And that's how I ended up uh, where I am. I think this decision has been a very good one for me. Hmm. I see. So with Australia having moved to cement its position in space over the past several years since the reestablishment of the Australian Space Agency, how do you see Australia's future in this domain? Look, I think we have a really positive future. Um, if you think back to where we were, say, in uh, 2012 or 2010, um, it was pretty miserable. Um, there wasn't a lot of government. There wasn't a lot of government interest in space. Um, there were attempts to stand up, stand up space offices. Um, to manage space issues in Australia, but there wasn't much government support, and so there was no money flowing. There was popular support, but it wasn't high uh, on, on the uh, view of, of many people. And we tended to have this mindset that we will depend on the US to provide space capabilities for us. So we would provide the ground segment, which is the ground facilities. We would provide personnel to manage those ground facilities to communicate with the satellites, but it would be the US and other foreign partners that would provide <clears throat> the satellites themselves and obviously launch the satellites uh, from Earth. I think fundamentally that changed um, around about probably 2016, 2015, um, when we began to uh, open our eyes and realize that Commercial space and Space 2.0 was really an important thing uh, that Australia did not have to spend hundreds of billions of dollars on space to be a player 
in this area. So in other words, the move from space 1.0 of government run space agencies doing everything uh, to space 2.0, where you basically let the commercial sector lead uh, and new space, I think has been really critical in shaping Australia's thinking. And of course, the key uh, milestone happened at the 2017 International Astronautical Congress, where the government uh, then announced the decision to stand up an Australian space agency. And that's been critical because that Australian space agency um, is it's not a mini NASA down under. Its job is to promote and support the growth of the commercial space sector in Australia. So it doesn't build the satellites. It doesn't build the rockets like NASA does. It helps the commercial sector um, uh, gather um, momentum and, and strength. And so I think that that's really critical that we've made that choice to move down the space 2.0 path and the new space path here in this country. And it's given us momentum. That's why I think that now we're, we're on the right path to sustain our space activities into the future uh, in, in a much broader way. And I would say that that includes not only the ground segment, but also the space segment as well. So we will have the ability to launch Australian satellites on Australian launch vehicles from Australian launch sites. And that's a sign of maturity for a country uh, that is seeking to play a more serious role in space. Indeed. So tied to that, noting growing recognition over space as a critical infrastructure area, how might Australia move to safeguard its national interests in outer space? Well, I think this is a really important question um, because you know, for many years we had the assumption that was rather you know, uh, reached by looking at space through rose-coloured glasses that we would always have access to space, that it was this peaceful commons, uh, an uncontested, serene sanctuary free from conflict that sat, sat above geopolitical competition on, on, on Earth. I think we're now realising that that um, perception is wrong and that space is a contested domain, uh, that uh, we are facing major power adversaries. And I, as a someone who's outside of government, I can name names. So I will name China and Russia um, that are developing counter space capabilities uh, designed to deny the US and its allies access to space systems in a future conflict. And so we have to recognize that as we develop space capabilities, um, we have to develop those space capabilities with a contested domain in mind. And we have to ensure the ability to sustain access to space. Part of that is working with our allies. Part of that is building resilience into our space capabilities. Um, that can be achieved through uh, disaggregated constellations of satellites rather than putting all our, all our eggs in one basket by having a, a small number of very large, expensive satellites. We have lots of small satellites. So we spread those capabilities around and having the ability to reconstitute space capabilities in a crisis. And that's where an Australian launch capability really comes to the fore, where it's really critical that we develop that. So space is a critical infrastructure area. It's a critical um, provider for not only how we fight wars, but also our society. And we have to develop space capabilities in a manner that ensures we have access to space 
on a 24-7 basis, even when an adversary tries to deny us this access. Tied to this, do you foresee cybersecurity as a core element of Australia's activities in outer space? Absolutely. Um, when you look at developments in counter space capabilities that are occurring now, um, you're obviously seeing countries like China and Russia and India more recently uh, testing what's known as direct ascent anti-satellite weapons that are designed to hit uh, a target and destroy it physically. Uh, and that's bad because that produces clouds of space debris uh, and you don't want space to be congested to the point whereby no one can use it. So the more sophisticated approach that our adversaries are taking is non-kinetic kill uh, or soft kill capabilities, whereby you disable or disrupt uh, or deny access to a satellite without physically destroying it. And cyber attack on satellites directly or cyber attack on the ground segment that controls and manages those satellites, or even the use of cyber weapons against the supply chain that builds the satellites uh, is, I think, one key area that we're going to see in the future where our adversaries are moving uh, down that path to have that ability to uh, hack into our satellites and either control them or deny them, deny us access to those satellites or uh, spoof them. In other words, feed false information. Uh, you saw the Russians doing this in 2017 and 2018 with GPS, where they were spoofing GPS satellites to misdirect um, sat, um, ships at sea uh, and to interfere with a NATO exercise off the coast of Norway in 2018. So we need to be very conscious of the cyber threat to satellites. And that means we need to have the ability to defend satellites against cyber threats to identify a hacking attack on a satellite and respond to it. And I think that's really critical. Admittedly, the growing commercialization of outer space has given rise to an increasingly congested environment, most notably the activities undertaken by private companies such as SpaceX in their deployment of the Starlink mega constellation. What cybersecurity risks do you see as evident in the mass deployment of these interconnected telecommunication systems? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a really important issue. Um, Obviously, it's not just SpaceX with Starlink, which is a mega constellation in LEO to provide broadband in the sky. There's a bunch of other companies that are looking to do something similar. So you're going to see a dramatic increase in the number of satellites in LEO, low Earth orbit, in coming years. And the potential for um, an adversary, whether it's a state-based adversary like China and Russia, or whether it's a non-state adversary, such as a terrorist group or even a lone hacker uh, to be able to access those satellites, hack into them and, and um, disrupt them, I think is really important uh, that we respond to that because we're going to be increasingly dependent on LEO-based mega constellations, not just for military activities, but for our national uh, society and our economy and our way of life. You know, one of the things that people are talking about in terms of uh, Leo Mega constellations is Internet of Things to complement 5G and ultimately 6G. Um, and if an adversary can hack um, the constellations uh, in Leo to disrupt the Internet of Things, that could have fairly calamitous implications for society as a whole. 
So I do think that there is a real risk that cyber will become the tool of choice for adversaries to disrupt our space access because it's so cheap, it's impossible to monitor and verify who's doing what with cyber, um, and it's um, deniable. You know, how do you know if a satellite is malfunctioning, uh, is it an attack uh, as a result of a cyber hack, or is it simply a malfunctioning satellite? So there's a, a real possibility there of, of a gray zone operation in space where an adversary can disrupt and deny us access to space and then deny that they're doing anything. And I think that's really important. In addition to that, do you see that an increasingly congested space environment will pose an elevated threat to the notion of space as a global commons? If so, how can nations coordinate to devise a multilateral solution? Yeah, look, I think that there's a common refrain when we talk about space domain now is it's contested, congested, and competitive. You know, I've talked about the contested bit whereby you have adversaries developing counter space capabilities and ASATs and co-orbital soft kill systems. Congested is the bit where you have lots of space debris up there already and the potential for more space debris in the future, particularly if adversaries are stupid enough to use hard kill capabilities to physically destroy satellites. You have uh, what's known as the Kessler syndrome, uh, which has been suggested where you have these cascading series of collisions over a series of weeks that ultimately lead to critical orbits being denied. And that particularly could happen in geo, geosynchronous orbit, where you've got lots of satellites in close proximity. So that would then see us not being able to use space at all, uh, potentially for generations until we could find a way to clear that debris. I think that this is a, um, a, you know, a potentially an ill wind that blows good because there's a real opportunity for nation states uh, to work together to deal with the congestion problem and the space debris problem. I think that it's not in anyone's interest to increase congestion. So I think the potential for some degree of cooperation uh, through international legal and regulatory means is, is there, uh, whereby even China and Russia can work with the US and others to deal with this. But there's al also the potential for commercial companies to find ways to mitigate the, the um, space debris risk, to clear space debris and to even recycle space debris and reuse the raw materials from that uh, in, in new capabilities. So there's you know, potentially profit to be made there for some space startup in the future that, that develops the means to be able to clear that space debris. Uh, but it is a real problem. Um, and I think that you know, we do need to work together uh, as a global multilateral approach to deal with this. Noting the increasingly militarized and weaponized nature of outer space activities conducted by Russia and China, how has the threat landscape changed over the past decade? Will there be a greater degree of danger posed by kinetic versus non-kinetic threats to spacecraft? Um, I think that in the Cold War, you have the Soviet Union uh, and um, the United States developing anti-satellite weapons. The Soviets deployed anti-satellite weapons. Um, the Americans didn't. Um, but those anti-satellite weapons were pretty crude. Uh, they were essentially hit-to-kill weapons. Uh, some of them were nuclear-tipped, and so therefore they generated 
electromagnetic pulse, which wiped out large numbers of satellites that way. It was pretty crude, blunt force um, approach. You then probably went into the second phase of counter space in the early 21st century, where you saw countries like China testing hit to kill um, direct descent ASATs. And the Chinese tested one in 2007 on, on, a, on one of their own satellites and created a cloud of space debris. Uh, since then, they tested, made, did a series of tests whereby they demonstrated the ability uh, to deliver an ASAT into geostationary orbit with very high altitude rockets. Um, at the same time, you saw um, China and Russia and the United States um, deploying uh, uh, satellites um, for rendezvous and proximity oper operations, RPOs to maneuver close to a target satellite to gather intelligence and potentially to interfere with that satellite. Um, now, we've not had any RPOs directed by one country against another. So it's all been um, you know, sort of at a distance. The most recent was the Russians um, deploying uh, satellites close to an American uh, KH-11 spy satellite, but it, it, but it didn't interfere with that spy satellite directly. But it does generate the, the risk that an adversary can develop these co-orbital ASAT capabilities um, that could then maneuver close to a target satellite and use um, electronic warfare or a directed energy weapon or cyber attack to disrupt that satellite and disable it uh, in a soft kill. Uh, and I think that what you're seeing is a transition away from hard kill to soft kill, uh, whereby uh, you will see in the future ground-based and co-orbital counter-space capabilities based around soft kill that will be at the core of um, counter-space capability development in the future. Uh, I think that you know, everyone is wise to the risks posed by hard kill. And so I don't really see you know, direct ascent hard kill systems um, being the flavor of the month, uh, you know, later in this uh, in this uh, in this decade, I think that increasingly you're going to see states moving down the soft kill path, and that's where we're headed. Uh, I think in the next few years. So, just moving to more current news concerning the recent Artemis Accords unveiled by the United States, where they're effectively looking to engage in bilateral treaties with a number of nation states. What capabilities do you see Australia can bring to the table? Look, Bob, the Artemis Accords are really important because you know that and the Trump administration's recent executive order uh, on space mining um, highlight the fact that the Americans, at least under Trump, um, you know, who knows if he'll be re-elected this year, but let's assume he is. Uh, you know, um, at least under Trump, the Americans are very serious about. Uh, exploiting space resources on the moon and on nearby uh, resource-rich Earth asteroids. And they want to be able to use those space resources for strategic benefit and for profit. And so they don't want to be beholden to um, uh, documents like the 1979 Moon Treaty, which would constrain the US ability to be able to access resources and profit from them. But at the same time, they need to manage the potential for competition between states on the moon and uh, near these resource-rich asteroids to avoid a free-for-all. And so the Artemis Accords are really about trying to draw uh, the ground rules for 
uh, resource exploitation on the high frontier of cislunar space. And I think that's really critical because it's, it's telling the world that the Americans are determined to go back to the moon rather than stay wallowing around in low Earth orbit as, as been the case since 1972. And so Australia, I think, should support America's approach in this regard. Um, I don't see the Artemis Accords or Trump's executive order on space mining as a negative thing. I see it as a positive thing because ultimately we have to break out of LEO. We have to get back to the moon and the moon is the stepping stone to the rest of the solar system. And it's also the basis for establishing a space-based economy. And Australia can play a key role in this regard. Yeah, that is the next Greek big step in terms of humanity in space. We've gone from, you know, space 1.0 um, government controlled space programs, which sort of like a very slow and risk averse and kind of dripped along uh, to space 2.0 and new space where you have SpaceX and uh, Blue Origin and others that are really pushing the innovation curve and really transforming how we access a new space. And I think the, the third step is that space-based economy centered around the moon and cislunar space. And that's why it's really critical that we have some sort of approach to the rules and the regulatory environment, and Australia has to play a role in that. Do you interpret the Artemis Accords as Washington's attempt to maintain its status as a world leader in crafting a new international order in outer space? Yes, I do. And I think that the Americans are very focused on what China is planning to do uh, on and around the moon. Um, at the moment, uh, the plan is for the US to get astronauts back on the lunar surface by late 2024. Um, if President Trump were to lose the election this year, as is quite possible, then it's unknown what President Biden would, would uh, be thinking in terms of space. But it's likely that that goal would be pushed back later in the decade to perhaps 2028. The Chinese are thinking in terms of uh, lunar missions in the early 2030s. So there's the potential for by the late 2020s, early 2030s to start to see the sort of competition between the US and China that was characterized previously between the US and the Soviet Union during the space race. We're not in a space race now, but we could be later in the decade. And part of that would be how do you control and access space resources uh, that are you know, potentially very lucrative? How do you control um, the, the cislunar region, uh, which is strategically important in an astro-strategic sense? So I think that the Artemis Accords are, are a step towards setting those ground rules um, as to ensure that the US retains space leadership up on that high frontier. And as I said, it, it all depends on what happens with um, the Artemis program as to whether it's delayed or not. But um, either way, uh, in the late 2020s, early 2030s, I do think you'll see competition between the US and China, uh, between commercial companies up there. Um, and so therefore the rules and the regulations have to be established. Finally, to finish off, if you were to become the Prime Minister of Australia, how would you drive change across outer space? That's a, that's a, that's a, a fun question to consider. I don't have any political aspirations at this time, but um, if I were to uh, sort of dream that particular dream, say I was the PM, 
Um, I suppose that for Australia, uh, I would be very pro-space. Uh, I would strongly encourage the development of a comprehensive and advanced um, space uh, industry in this country. I think that's already happening, but I'd push that further. Uh, I would make it my mission uh, to ensure that Australian satellites uh, developed here can be launched on Australian launch vehicles from Australian launch sites on a regular basis. Uh, I would encourage uh, the um, establishment of an Australian astronaut corps that could take part in international missions uh, as part of, for example, with Artemis on the moon. I would love to see one day an Australian standing on the lunar surface in a spacesuit with an Australian flag on that spacesuit, because I think that would be one of the most uplifting and stirring and um, inspiring sights for young Australians in this country to be able to see that one day they can do they can do that they can go to the moon or they can go to Mars, and I think that's really important. What we have to do is break out of a cultural cringe that this country has, that we can't do it, uh, that we don't have the means to do become serious about space. We're partway there, but there is this hesitancy about pushing forward. And I think as a, as a prime, as a, you know, were I prime minister, um, I would try to crush that cultural cringe and say, look, Australia is well placed to be a serious space actor, including with a human space flight program uh, in, in uh, cooperation with our allies. Um, and uh, you know, particularly with the Five Eyes partners, uh, and we can do it. And I think that's that would be my message. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Malcolm, for your unique insights into geopolitics, defence and outer space from an Australian perspective. We look forward to expanding on these topics with you again in the future. Thank you very much. And for our curious listeners out there, eager to learn more about defence and strategic policy in the Indo-Pacific, please visit the Australian Strategic Policy Institute at aspi.org.au. We thank you for joining us today and we look forward to you joining us again for our next episode of Decoding Cyberspace.